Welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, and I'm Wayne Zell, your host of this fast-paced half hour of special guests and educational content. Shows brought to you by Zell Law, an estate, business, tax, and fiduciary planning firm located in Reston, Virginia, serving clients all across the country. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today, we're going to talk about recent tax proposals that have been introduced by the Biden administration and in the Congress that may be of interest to you. The first act we're going to talk about is Bernie Sanders' bill, known as the 99.5% Act, that would be effective if it were passed as law on January 1, 2022, so it's not retroactive like many had feared. This bill uncouples the estate and gift tax exemptions. Currently, every individual in the U.S. has $11.7 million of exemption from the estate tax and gift tax that are available to them. A married couple, therefore, has $23.4 million of exemption available to them. The 0.5% that are subject to the estate tax have more assets than those thresholds. This bill lowers the exemptions all the way back to 2009 levels at $3.5 million for the estate and generation skipping transfer tax and a million dollars for the gift tax. And that's why they say it's decoupled from the gift tax because we have a lower exemption. It also stops indexing exemptions and exclusions for inflation. So right now, if you think back to what the exemptions were back all the way in 2012, the exemptions were $5 million a person and they gradually increased to $5.78 million. This year, if the Trump bill hadn't doubled those exemptions, it would have been $5.85 million, and that's because of indexing for inflation. They would do away with indexing for inflation. This bill also increases the tax rate on estate taxes and gift taxes and generation skipping transfer taxes to as high as 65% for people who have over a billion dollars in assets but importantly, if you have more than $3.5 million in assets, the rate would go up from 40% to 45%. Donors, people who make gifts, are limited to just two exclusion gifts annually when the gift is made to a trust or it's made of certain flow-through assets like an interest in a limited partnership or a limited liability company. And very importantly, it reduces the annual exclusion gift amount from $15,000 at its current level back down to $10,000, which was what it was over two decades ago. And it caps the amount of exclusions you can make to $20,000 per donor. So if you had five kids and you used to give away $15,000 to, to each child, which would be exempt from the estate tax, because it's subject to the annual exclusion of $15,000, you could give away $75,000 per year to each child without having to report it to the IRS. Now it's capped at $20,000 per donor. One of the most controversial provisions in this bill is that it prohibits the step-up in basis of assets at death for assets that are held in grantor trusts that are otherwise not included in the uh, taxpayer's gross estate. The gross estate normally includes all assets that you own, but if during your life you made a gift to a trust that was known as an intentionally defective grantor trust, 
so that it's excluded from your estate, they would not allow you to step up the basis in those assets anymore. For high net worth clients, we usually set up vehicles known as dynasty trusts that can last in perpetuity. And in many jurisdictions, they have waived the rule against perpetuities that allows you to hold assets forever in trust and not have to pay tax. This bill imposes a 50-year limit on generation-skipping trusts that were categorized as dynasty trusts. Another controversial provision is that this bill would eliminate the ability to use valuation discounts for transfers of minority interests or interests that lack marketability in closely held businesses where you're transferring it to a family member or to a trust for a family member. And for grantor retained annuity trusts, another popular vehicle for advanced planning, the minimum term would be 10 years. Right now we use GRATs that are two years or three years or five years. The, the minimum term would be 10 years for all future GRATs. And they would enact a whole new provision into the Internal Revenue Code that targets some of the advanced estate planning and gift tax planning uh, vehicles that we create today that would prohibit that from happening uh, under the new law. That's the 99.5% Act, which was Bernie Sanders alone uh, legislation. Then, not, then we have the STEP Act. The STEP Act was introduced by Senators Van Holland and Sanders on April 28th of 2021, and it's retroactive to January 1st of this year if it's enacted. Very controversial bill. It says that property transferred by a gift to a non-grantor trust, a trust that's irrevocable and where the trust pays the tax or the beneficiaries pay the tax, or any transfer at death is deemed to have been sold at fair market value at the time of the transfer. In English, what that means is if you owned an asset that you bought for $100 and is now worth a million dollars because it's appreciated in value, and you die, that asset has, is deemed to have been sold by your estate so that the estate has to pay capital gains tax on the appreciation in that asset, $999,900 would be subject to capital gains tax at death. There's an exclusion for up to a million dollars of unrealized capital gains, but that's in the aggregate. And there's also exclusions for transfers of personal residences and transfers to spouses. Interestingly, every 21 years, any of these non-grantor trusts are deemed to be selling their assets. So as they appreciate in value inside these irrevocable trusts, there's a deemed sale every 21 years. So the trust has to pay tax whether or not they've sold the asset. This is, these two provisions are going to create major liquidity problems for estates and trusts that have been created already. Large trusts are required to provide annual accountings to the IRS. And for grantor trusts, which are really every other trust, including your revocable trust that you may have set up, there's a deemed sale of the property when the property is transferred out of the trust or at death so that the trust is no longer treated as a grantor trust. There's automatic recognition of capital gains at death. 
a highly controversial set of provisions. One that I'll give you my reaction in a second, but it may be very difficult for Congress to pass these provisions. President Biden introduced his Green Book, which is the Treasury provisions, the Treasury proposals that are included in his overall budget for 2021. He introduced it on May 28th of 2021, and it lacks a lot of details, but one of the things we do know is that the Green Book makes no mention of any changes in the estate, gift, or generation-skipping transfer tax exemptions like are contained in the 99.5% Act. But it does increase the highest rate for income taxes on individuals to 39.6%. The current rate is 37%. More importantly, it would tax any capital gains over a million dollars at that 39% rate. Another harsh provision, but think back to the Clinton administration. In 1993, Bill Clinton did the same thing. He did away with capital gains preferences so that they were no longer taxed at the lower rates. He also balanced the budget doing that. The Green Book also retains the step-up in basis at death, but again, it taxes unrealized gains on capital assets at death it's subject to capital gains tax. There's a $1 million aggregate exclusion. So this Green Book proposal looks very similar to Senator Van Holland and Senator Sanders' provisions in the STEP Act. Transfers to charity and transfers to spouses would be excluded from this unrealized capital gains tax. So my reactions are, each of these three provisions, each of the, the bills or the proposals, contain radical changes to the tax law. The most radical being, in my opinion, taxation of unrealized capital gains at death. It's going to create a massive liquidity crunch if these provisions are enacted into law. I would say that there are moderate Democrats like Manchin and Mark Warner from Virginia that, who, that would oppose these provisions because they are so harsh. And it's not just favoring the wealthy it's, it's, uh, it's, or, or disfavoring the wealthy. It's going after virtually every taxpayer in the United States who has any appreciation in their homes or in their stocks or in their portfolios. So we'll keep our eyes out for what's happening, and we'll report that back to you in future segments. Thanks for listening to the educational segment for Blueprint for Wealth. And next, our special guest joins us on the show. And today we have my good friend and client, Larry Johnson, who is the CEO of Veris Consulting. And Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a special guest today. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. No problem. Um, you know, we're going to delve into your background a little bit. I'd like to hear, you know, a little bit about where you came from, where you grew up, and also uh, a little bit about Varus and uh, about what you're doing uh, today. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I was uh, born actually in Washington, D.C., so I'm like a sixth-generation native Washingtonian. I grew up in uh, the uh, close-in suburbs in Maryland uh, in a little town called Mount Rainier, uh, went to the 
local Catholic school for eight years. The nuns put up with me for eight years. Um, then I thought I was a basketball player, so I went to a uh, high school named DeMatha High School, which has been the producer of a bunch of NBA talent. And Adrian although I made Danley. the freshman team, I realized I was a, you know, as the, the movie said, white men can't jump. I was the epitome of that. So <laughs> uh, my basketball career ended uh, somewhat abruptly. Uh, and then I transferred, went to uh, public high school, uh, then the University of Maryland, um, and began my professional career after I graduated from the University of Maryland. And uh, you're a CPA, correct? Correct, yes. So um, I remember you telling me that you were uh, with a firm called Ernst & Winnie. Yes. What was that? Uh, well, at uh, the time I graduated, which was uh, way too many years ago, 1968, there were what was referred to as the Big Eight. They were eight national, international CPA firms, which really kind of dominated the landscape of accounting firms. Ernst, it, at that time, it was Ernst & Ernst. Uh, it was right. one of those big eight firms. Uh, you know, I interviewed with all eight of them. You know, I've, I've received, you know, a bunch of offers and then negotiated my salary. So I, I was able to up my starting salary from $9,000 to $9,300, <laughs> uh, which I thought was all the money in the world. Uh, and I began my career in its Washington, D.C. office. Uh, and I spent the next uh, 18 years with that firm in that office. I was admitted to the partnership uh, in 1978, no, 60, yeah, I'd been with the firm 10 years when I was admitted to the partnership, and I remained a partner for eight years, six of those I was in charge of the kind of the audit and accounting practice for that firm, and uh, I resigned from the partnership in 1986. You know, I, the the intimacy of being one of 2,000 partners kind of left me a little bit cold. And wow. I was about to turn 40 and thought that I ought to try to see whether I was as good as entrepreneur as I thought I was. So I so I quit uh, and started uh, my own practice, which was named Johnson Lambert and Company. Uh, we put company on it to make it sound like there were more people than Johnson and Lambert, but it was two people um, with, you know, some ridiculous ambitions. Um, but I thought it, if not then, never. Um, and so I did that. And, you know, at the time I thought that, um, you know, the firm could be kind of a niche specialty boutique kind of firm working with things that were in my background, which were financial institutions, insurance companies and the like. And you know, kind of had some audacious goals, but today, uh, and I, I, re I remain with that firm as the managing partner until 2005. Uh, today, that firm is, uh, I think, in eight offices, has better than 150 professionals. The big eight has shrunk to the big four uh, through either merger or, in the case of Arthur Anderson, its demise. Where I started uh, my Johnson, career. Yeah, I mean, Johnson Lambert now, in terms of, of CPA firms serving the insurance uh, marketplace in the U.S. is the fifth largest firm. So some of those um, aspirations actually became reality. Uh, over time, uh, I dabbled more by happenstance doing a little bit of expert witness work, and uh, that became something that was uh, I was more involved with and frankly had more of an interest in. 
uh, and that bit practice began to sort of develop on its own. So in the year 2000, uh, I, I concluded that, that was really a separate type of service and separated that from Johnson Lambert into a firm named Varus Consulting, which is where I've spent the last 21 years. Um, for five of those years, I continued to be the managing partner of Johnson Lambert as well. And then I officially retired from Johnson Lambert in 2005 um, and have continued to be the CEO of Varus Consulting up, up until our acquisition with which I know you're very familiar um, a couple of months ago. Yeah, I'm very familiar with Johnson Lambert too because I was helpful, I guess, in helping you uh, separate the businesses and let them both thrive. Uh, many years ago, but uh, it's, yes. it was an interesting time. I remember meeting you for the first time, probably about 16 years ago. Um, the uh, how would you describe yourself in your earlier years? You know, you, you tell me about the basketball thing because I'm fascinated. By that. <laughs> Were you a center? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was a hot shot guard. I thought, uh, right. you know, when I was, uh, you know, when I was growing up, and you know. The, the sports were, if you went to Catholic school, they were conducted by the Catholic youth organization, CYO. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was, you know, I played basketball, baseball, football. I thought I was, you know, the all-around, all-American athlete. Um, and, uh, and and actually probably in retrospect was pretty good. Um, you know, I went, I went, I was a bit recruited because back then the Catholic schools, uh, high schools began to do some recruiting. Um, but I never will forget. I in the summer between, you know, my graduation eighth grade from St. James Catholic School to Damatha, you know, they had you know kind of summer practice where the new kids came out, and I remember going to this, and you know, I was probably you know five foot seven, um, and there were three kids that could dunk the ball. They were six eight, six nine. Ultimately, three of them became high school Americans. Two of them played in the NBA, and I quickly realized that it was a different world, uh, and that I should really think about other career opportunities. <laughs> Why did you go into accounting? Uh, it happenstance. I uh, I went to University of Maryland with uh, this idea of uh, becoming an attorney. So I was quote unquote pre law. Uh, which meant you were in at Maryland you know, at the College of Arts and Sciences, and you had to have a foreign language requirement. And uh, I started in that first semester, and I looked at what the curriculum was and said, I, I don't want to do that. So I transferred to the business school, and in my, I guess, sophomore year, you know, you take the principles of accounting, and I had no idea really what it was. And, you know, all my friends were really struggling with these you know, debits on the left, credits on the right, everything had to balance. Yeah. And it just came really easy to me. So I thought, well, maybe I'll take a few more. And I took a few more and it continued to come kind of easy. And then I started hearing that you could actually get a job doing it. And, you know, people were making what I thought was just great amounts of money, you know, 8,300 bucks, I think the class ahead of me. So I continued that and, you know, I, I, I graduated, uh, you know, I was in the accounting honorary thing and I was a, you know, magna cum laude graduate, but it was, you know, the accounting thing was really um, simply because it seemed to come easy. It seemed to make sense. I don't know whether it's, 
you know, I think I have a somewhat analytical mind. People say you're your accountant because you were good at math, right? And I said, I don't know that I was good at math at all. It's, it has nothing to do with math. Uh, it just, uh, it all kind of clicked. And, you know, as the expression goes, the re- you know, rest is history. I, you know, I, I did very well. I was, you know, those big eight firms, you know, they recruited heavily, you know, lunches and dinners and all that stuff. And, you know, I was, uh, I was, had became, my ego continued to grow. Uh, with each passing lunch, and I thought this is really pretty cool. Um, so I, you know, I, I started, I started at Ernst and Ernst, and I frankly had no uh, expectation of continuing long term. I, I looked around, I saw there was a pretty high turnover rate, so I, you know, I enrolled in graduate school uh, at GW and uh, toured a, a, a master's with a concentration in finance because I thought I was ultimately going to leave and that just be one more credential. But then I continued to advance. I was going to graduate school at night. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got to a point, I, I think I completed all my course credits. I needed to write a thesis. Uh, and it became a question of, you know, I was doing well where I was. I was enjoying it more. Uh, I wanted to write the great American novel as a thesis, and I never got to that. So I simply just gave it up and said, looks like I'm in this for, the, for life. And that's how I've been treating things for the last 40 years. So, Varys, you mentioned that you sort of started dabbling in expert witness testimony, but um, Varys is a forensic accounting firm, right? Correct, yes. What is forensic accounting, for those who don't know? I I think it's uh, trying to look at um, economics and uh, uh, identify causes and implications of various kinds of either events or transactions, uh, including circumstances where there's been apparent uh, wrongdoing or where there is are instances of, of potential fraud or insolvency, to try to uh, put the pieces together and figure out why and who and how, um, and in certain circumstances to identifies instances of wrongdoing, certain instances identify wrongdoers, mm-hmm. in some instances identifying the economic harm resulting from that. Um, you know, some of our engagements, I mean, we've been very fortunate to have been involved in some very high profile matters uh, where we spent significant amount of time in very complex things, which would included, you know, Enron, um, uh, really? the Bernie wow. Madoff things, Lehman Brothers, um, and, you know, in, in terms of the insurance world, I think if you were to look at probably the lar- 10 largest insolvencies in U.S. history, um, we've been involved doing forensic work along the lines I described in probably half of them. So I think for a relatively small organization, we, we developed a reputation for being able to figure out particularly complex things and be able to describe them in a way that was understandable. Um, whether that was through reports or deposition or trial testimony, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's been it's been really a very uh, in, enjoyable and successful run. So you got to live out your dream of being an attorney because you were working with attorneys all the time, probably smarter than half of them. Yeah, it was, it's, you know, I always want, I always want to sit on the other side to be the one asking the questions, um, but 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 frankly, I think that. Um, uh, the the thing that I have enjoyed most, and it, it's you know you got you, you got to be a little bit uh, not right in the head, but um, you know I 
I enjoy cross-examination because I believe that's really a test of, of wits and a test of knowledge and the ability to think fast and to figure things out. Um, and so to me, you know, it, you know when, you do, when, you, when you do testimony, the direct examination is, you know, it's kind of like putting on a production. You know, it's your kind of questions and answers that are based upon your findings and your report. And cross is where the other side is trying to take that apart. Right. And to me, that's the part where the juice has really begun to flow. And because it really is then a test of, you know, how well you've developed your findings, how good you are at expressing them, how rational your thinking is, and how well you can defend it. Why did you, uh, why did you sell the business? What led you to sell the business? I think there was, you know, first of all, it was not an easy decision to come to, you know, when you, when you give birth to something and then you watch it grow, uh, it's, you know, a little bit like your kid going off to college and you try to figure out what to do. I, I, I think there were a couple reasons. Uh, you know, one is, is, you know, my age, I, 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 I'm, I'm certainly not as young as I was when we started all these things. Um, and, and I think it was the ability to introduce additional capital to permit, um, not, not just the continuation of the business, but um, future growth. Um, because in a small firm, you know, there's always a constraint of capital. And if you're going to expand, whether it's organically or not, it requires capital. And yes. the, the a transaction in which it looked like to me there was an opportunity for capital in amounts that were beyond our reach made a great deal of sense. Um, you know, it, the, the firm with which we've merged uh, has some similar uh, attributes, similar culture, um, and similar services. Um, there's a substantial private equity firm behind it. So I think it it's just seemed to make sense. The timing seemed to be right. You know, I had explored uh, possibilities in the past, and they just never seemed to be right, either because of economics or culture or um, capital or all the things that when I looked at the particular transaction that we actually entered into all seemed to make sense. What was the greatest obstacle that you faced in your career that you had to overcome and how did you manage to overcome it? I think the demands that a successful career places on your personal life. Uh, you know, I think that uh, I, find, I think it was, it's very difficult. I think it's probably more true 40 years ago than it is today. Um, you know, when, when, I, when I started, uh, you know, there was a busy season and you worked six or seven days a week yeah. and you worked 10 or 12 hours a day and you did that from January to maybe April. Um, you know, you, you, you know it, it, it was such a different world, you know. You went out to lunch, then you went out to dinner, and then you went back to work after dinner. Um, and you'd get home and then you started all over the next day and and having a personal life and, you know, um, you know wife and kids and trying to balance that uh, is very, very difficult. I do think today, um, you know, the kids today, it's different. And I think the work ethic has changed, not that they're less interested in work, but I think the world has recognized that you, there's got to be a better balance of, of life personal yeah. priorities as well as business goals. And um, back then, I don't think that really existed. You you were either in or you were out. Uh, yeah. 
you know, you could say, I want to, I want to go home tonight and spend the evening with the kids or the family or something. That was, that's just what you, you didn't talk about it. Uh, you know, I thought I was a big trend breaker when, you know, I didn't wear a hat to work. I mean, that was, <laughs> that just tells you how, you know, I, I'm going out with these people that, you know, they got three piece suits and hats and, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd have had, you know, shorts and, you know, flip flops on. But, um, and sweatshirts. You know, and I, I, do, I, I, you know, I think that uh, I, I paid and my family and dad paid a price for that. And, yeah. you know, you you make choices and sometimes you look back and say, maybe I, I should have done something different. But, you know, I had a I had a I had a, I was frankly, I was pretty much driven and I had a passion and. I wanted to, uh, you know, I'm I'm first generation college. Uh, I grew up in what probably today would be referred to as the hood. Uh, I didn't know it was the hood. It was just where I lived, and you know, I I I had a uh, I had a mindset that I was going to do something different. I was going to, you know, I was going to be whatever the hell successful meant. Which back then I think kind of meant uh, you made more money and you had some type of professional status, and yep. that kind of drove me. Well, I, uh, I we've run out of time for today, but I'm going to have you back on the show at another time because I want to talk about your other passion, which is horse racing, and um, and it's something that that you're deeply involved in, and it's a whole nother business, a whole nother. Uh, it's, I wouldn't call it a hobby; it's a whole nother business that I uh, I want to explore with you. We'll schedule you in the future, but uh, I really appreciate your time today. Your story is compelling. And it's, you know, what, what it illustrates to me is that uh, entrepreneurs have a passion. You're an entrepreneur. You had a passion. You pursued it. And uh, you successfully achieved uh, an exit for your business. But uh, you did it in a way that uh, re- really preserved the culture of what you had, st- you know, strived so hard to build. And so I congratulate you on that. Well, th- thank you. And I, you know, you, I know you, you know that I'm appreciative of the help you gave along the way to make that transaction happen. Uh, you know, I felt at times we were in the 13 month of a nine month pregnancy, but uh, it's all done. I, I, uh, I would love to talk to you about the horse racing because that really is, that's a different kind of passion. Um, it's a different kind of thrill. Uh, and it's something that really is the, the, you get an adrenaline high and, um, you know, and you don't have to worry about staff retention because the horses don't need personal time off. <laughs> well, with that, we'll we'll say thank you and uh, and Larry, have a great weekend. Um, again, it's great seeing you, and uh, look forward to talking to you about the horse racing in the future. Look forward to it. You enjoy the weekend as well. Thanks as thank always, you. Wayne. You've been listening to Blueprint for Wealth, and uh, we thank Larry Johnson. Uh, formerly of Veris Consulting uh, and now of Larry Johnson's horse racing racing, uh, enterprise. We're going to talk about that in the future. Thank you again and have uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth, a video cast that hopefully is helping you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. For more information on these topics and more, visit us on the web at zellaw.com or give us a call at 571-203-ZELL or 571-203-9355. I'm Wayne Zell. Have a great day.